Welcome to Two Coats of Paint Conversations, a podcast about contemporary painting. This is Sharon Butler, and I'm your host. Um, this week, I'm sharing a conversation I had with noted poet, art critic, and um, curator, Raphael Rubenstein, on the occasion of my solo show, Next Moves, at Jennifer Bang Gallery. Um, located at 790 Madison Avenue in New York City. We talked about uh, the ways that artists move their work forward. Um, It was originally recorded as a video as part of the Bond Spotlight series, and you can see the video at their website. And if you go to the show notes, there's a link there. The conversation just kind of jumps right in, but I wanted to put it in the archive, and I hope you enjoy listening to it. When I saw these paintings first in uh, in photographs of them, uh, they looked. Some of them looked very different. Like the ones that have where you you're working with these um, uh, pixelated, these like lots of little squares. And in the photograph on the computer screen, they look very pixelated. And but the moment I saw one, like this one for instance, in real life, it doesn't seem like that at all. I mean, you can see the relationship to pixelation, but it doesn't have that effect. And like to me, you know, that's the thing about painting is that you have to, you've got to experience it in person and you also have to be able to move. You know, the, the paintings are not these like, we're, you know, we are not cameras, we are bodies within in a space looking at paintings. And, and I think like that's something that it's great to be back and you know, have that in our lives again and, and, and not take it for granted. Right. Paintings are all based on little digital drawings made on my phone. And so when I was blowing them up, and I would always put the grid on to blow up the drawing to start painting it. And one of them had a fake um, canvas as the background in the little drawing that the drawing app, you could choose the different kinds of background. And so when I blew it up and I saw this little canvas that it was tiny turn into this big grid and I, I thought it was sort of amusing that it was this little digital image of canvas a fake canvas painting on canvas you know the idea of the grid you know and that's where it all started from this translation from the digital to the handmade and then of course you know as I worked with it it just you know became more resonant and took on more meaning but you know ultimately now when you see them online and I also want to say that the reason I started making those drawings was because people would always show me their their pictures online you know they would always I'd go to an opening or something and say oh you see my paintings and I wanted to make something that was meant to be seen on the phone you know so that those drawings that I made for several years um, were only on the phone they weren't printed out there was no place to see them and so now it's kind of ironic that the um, paintings based on those that were meant to be seen on the phone are meant to be seen in person but end up for many people just being seen on Instagram again and not translating very well well this is it's you know it's part of the long um, history of painting being confronted with and challenged with uh, other means of representation with you know with photography with film with digital media and you know and often there's like the prophecy of the painting will be superseded it will be obsolete and and one of the 
you know, remarkable things about the medium of painting is it's, it's able to assimilate and absorb whatever um, new technology, whatever new medium is thrown at it. And, you know, I think like a lot of artists, you increasingly, there's like the, 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 the interface, the, like the lines between digital and uh, manual between uh, are, are like erased or, or sort of not really relevant. It's not that one is better than the other or one supersedes the other. But the, you know, what I wanted to the another thing that really struck me about these paintings is that the that they're multiple panel, multi-panel mm-hmm. paintings, and and is that something that is like that came as a result of the imagery that you're using? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the idea of the multi-panels, you know, once I started considering the grid, and then you realize that the grid is infinitely expandable. And I was interested in this notion after many years of working reductively and on unstretched canvas and with you know very little paint and a bit of pencil and you know just sort of getting to nothing, nothing, nothing until finally it was just a little scrap of tarp with nothing on it. I wanted to sort of make the work more complex somehow, and I didn't really know what that meant. And but the grid, the minute I wears whatever you want to call it, the minute that I started thinking about that, it seemed like this incredible opportunity and opportunity to expand the work in really interesting ways. It kind of became this portal, you know. You know, the grid, I could make, this was the first one that I did with the multi-panel piece. And, you know, piece at the bottom could be anywhere else in the gallery. It didn't have to be attached to the painting to read that as related to it. You know, there's so much. And and then it could have different meaning as well, you know, the detached, I call them legs, but the detached shapes. Once they're detached, whether they aligned, you know, they could have different meanings depending on how you install it. And so I really loved that idea of, you know, if the the grid is expanding the imagery in the painting itself, it could also be used as a way of just expanding, physically expanding the work. And then I sort of became attached to that and started adding things onto all the paintings. Well, I think that, you know, working with these um, kind of incomplete structures makes me think of some of the work that the French uh, painter Martin Barre did in the 1970s, where a painting, a kind of geometric painting, is you might take it as a, as a complete whole finished painting, but it, in fact it's it's extended. There's another painting that goes to it, and, and this idea, like the implication here, is that that the painting it's not a question of like being finished or unfinished, but it is a kind of arbitrary cutoff point. The the edges of the canvas, the the support is this. You know, you it's it's not as if this was kind of given by God. It's that. It's contingent, mm-hmm. and these paintings, yeah, they could they could go on like that. I think that's one of the things that is the effect of these. Like, and even this um, uh, four-panel painting here, where there's a lot of different styles in a way. There's like a kind of geometric abstraction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's something sort of more painterly and biomorphic. There's almost like a floor plan, and then there are things that are you know not maybe suggestive of uh, of a body and like that. How does that is that a for freedom, it's like you're pursuing some kind of freedom that you. I like was. You come to a fork in the road, and you can take both forks and. Yeah. Or turn back and. 
yeah. another direction? I, it was after my last show, and I was sort of thinking, you know, what direction. I wanted to, as I said, make the work somehow more complex, but I wasn't quite sure what that meant. And so these paintings were all made in that period as separate paintings. And when I was moving my studio in Dumbo, I had them all lined up against the wall before they were going to get packed up. And somehow that seemed to make sense, you know, to put them all on a wall like that, especially given their history as their beginning on Instagram, you know, which is the great grid maker of all imagery, you know, the great consolidator or I don't know what you call it, uh, joiner of all imagery. And they're each named after a specific day that the, the, the original digital drawing was made on. And so it's called Four Days, right? And to me, I really love the idea of having a day, having all the days together. And then the notion that the size of the panel becomes important in terms of the idea of time. How did you, this is just a technical question, so how do you transfer, how do you go from the digital image to the, to the painting image? Well, I, at first I was just drawing them. You know, I would draw out a grid, a sort of, not, not this detailed, but, you know, like an eight square grid on the canvas, and then do it print out one of the images and then translate it that way. And um, then I, for a while I was using a projector and I would project them onto there because I really wanted to get the proportions right in terms of line and shape and placement on the thing. And so that was good. But then after a while I started using the more complex grid. And so that, you know, is how I transferred these. But these, I think, these four were mostly projected. There's in the last space in the gallery, there's a selection of smaller paintings, works on paper, text pieces, collages, and I guess from that's like a range. Some of them look like they were going back to the 2000s, and there's a lot of different styles, a lot of different kinds of painting. Earlier, we were talking about the idea of like the transitional, and you said that someone, I think you said someone had come into your studio and said about the work that it was transitional, and which you felt you weren't happy with hearing that. And not surprisingly, because like transitional is this bad word. And, you know, to label something transitional, a body of work is to say, well, it, hopefully it will be, you know, it's leading somewhere. But I think to me, I always thought that transitional, isn't that what every artist is aiming for, to have like your work should always be right. on the way of yeah. like coming from somewhere, yeah. going somewhere else, and, and rather than being fixed and, and predictable. I think... It's almost like you're owning the transitional nature. Of well, you know, I have realized in going back and putting old panels together with new pieces and thinking about the old work, and then, of course, when I moved my studio, I saw a lot of that those drawings that are in the back, and I just saw a thread that ran through it. I think that, for me, the transitional period is both anxiety-provoking, but also it's the most exciting. And it's when I reach, you know, when I get to where I think I've gone, and then I get to the plateau, and I walk along there for a little way, and then I just get bored with it. You know, I can't, I can't be the type of artist who continues to paint the same thing for years, really. To me, the most exciting point is the spaces between. And, you know, I was showing, I was giving a talk to my class the other day, and we were looking at a Matisse painting, and, it, and I said, I don't really like this one because it, it doesn't have, it almost looks like it could be fake. And then we sort of were talking about the idea of transitional work, and that it often doesn't look like the artist's work and isn't valued as much as the artist's, or the work that the artist is known for. But for the artist, that work is often 
been the most meaningful. And the, right. and the stuff in the back made me realize that there was there were so many threads started and sort of left. Now I feel I'm in a point where I could pick them up and incorporate all of those things into what's to come next. Yeah, and it, 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 having it inclusive is a lot more um, positive than the idea. Like, like to, to think that labeling something transitional implies that somehow the artist became dissatisfied, like that, that, that what they were doing before was problematic, was, was not successful, and that what they will do is going to be successful in a way. And, and I think that, that it, it implies a kind of judgment and also the idea that you know artists should be somehow be able to stand back and see their own work objectively, which I mean I know like any artist knows like that's not only is it impossible to do, but it's usually not a good thing to do. Like <laughs> you know that, right? And but you can't help it. Like you are always trying to sort of how would how would X Y or Z see this work? And in the end, we can't. You know you have to just let that go and you just make the work. Right. That the kind of vocabulary or, or attitude that uh, terms like transitional bring along with them is something that I think it can be really damaging and not good for the art. art Right. I agree. You know, when I um, go to galleries, it's always more exciting to see, uh, you know, work by artists who are in the process of changing somehow than to see 10 more pieces like the 10 they had in their show last year. You know, it's exciting to see where their mind went, where the, the making and the process took them. Well, but there, there, there are different ways artists can do that. Like there's some artists who just, they change their work abruptly, like Picabia, like and with Picabia, he has like four different ways of painting throughout his career. And it's not, there's no sort of gradual shift. It's just one day I'm going to stop making this kind of painting and I'm going to start making this kind of painting. And he does that for 10 years and then he stops that and does something else for 10 years. And, and that's one of the reasons I guess that Picabia was seen as this challenge to you know, the idea of the like continuous static and the idea that the artist has discovered something and discovered some truth like and Picabia, you know this is going back quite a ways when MoMA did a Dada show or maybe they did a show of Picabia and they didn't show anything after like 1920 because they thought everything else is sort of decadent and, and you know, yeah. we don't think that anymore yes. but, but that like trying to fit you know push the artist into into a yeah, you know who else is like that? Barclay Hendricks, who did the early portraits that we're all familiar with now. But then he did this, um, he did a photography series of um, sort of police tape and high heel shoes and then high heel shoes outside the border. And then he also did a series of paintings in Jamaica, you know, landscape paintings from Jamaica. But it's rarely is that those bodies of work included in his thing. It's the same kind of thing. And I think that as an artist, there are some artists who um, take baby steps and, you know, and, and I... And you can watch this on Instagram, and they have very small incremental changes. And I think that those artists are the ones who move forward primarily through process. And then you've got artists who are like Picabia or Barclay who they think more about it. It's not necessarily directed by the process. I think I'm a little bit of both. And I think I had I had a hard time when I was younger reconciling the two because my head would get a, in front of my uh, process. You know, I think sometimes artists are responding to things happening in their lives or you know, something in the world 
that you know, a war or a death or something that an illness. Then there are also artists who respond to um, like things, you know, changing fashions, changing discoveries, and I guess the like the classic idea of like the artist who changes or transitional is, is Philip Guston. And what I found like the most, in some ways, the most interesting period of Guston is that like the late '60s when his abstract paintings start to like they begin to like shapes begin to congeal into something like a head but we only know that by reading backwards like we see he becomes a figure the painter and we can see these are heads he didn't know that at the time and like he because he was willing to venture into the unknown and like take that risk of failure yeah and not knowing where the paintings are going to go so do you think that there was ever a point with gustin where he he reached the plateau he and just kept going like, are there paintings in his body of work that seem like he just kept going because that's what he did in the later work? I mean, he was, you know, later work, he was just, he painted so quickly and so, it's like he couldn't keep up with his own imagination. Yeah. And he just painted like a madman the last 10 years of his life. Right. And kind of basically killed himself for his work. Yeah. Because he, not following the advice of his doctors. And right. I think that this idea of like, now how do you think about your older work? And I think also for some artists, like they're not interested in their past. They're not interested. Like I've already done that. I've, that's been you know I've made that body of work. But uh, one thing that I find interesting is when artists like want to buy back some of their older work or that's been sold. Or mm-hmm. They keep. I mean, there are artists who keep a lot of work. Then there are artists who just get rid of it. I don't want any of it in my studio. Right. All I care about is what I'm doing now. Right. That's. I don't know. Do you ever feel like? There are paintings that you want to, like you need them almost as a kind of talisman. Well, you know, artists kind of work and live in the eternal present. You don't really think about the past. I mean, I don't. And I don't really think about the future, and especially now with climate change. But I think that in the, you know, we always, in giving artist talks, we tell our story. And you always have to reduce that to certain benchmark points. And in the past, I've kind of eliminated certain sections, work that I thought wasn't really part of the thread. And and in going back for this show, and because I moved, and looking at some of the older work, it became really clear to me that even in the work that was landscape-based, or, you know, graduate school work, that it definitely had the elements that I'm still very much interested in. You know, I think it it has a lot to do with the story we want to tell. And I'm just now um, reclaiming my digital work from the early, from the 1990s and 2000s that I kind of sort of put aside when I became, when I came back to painting and I never really talked about the digital stuff. And I have whole bodies of work that are digitally based, but that the output options were so disappointing back then that I just, you know, moved back to painting and I have been painting ever since. And so for me, painting is the, I, I want to say painting is the it's the best output method. You know, I remember doing a, a piece that was, um, it was Moby Dick, and I animated a bunch of passages from it, and I wanted to project it on a, a building for this festival in New Haven. And it was like you couldn't get a projector that was that powerful. And so now people project stuff like that all the time, and I think, ah, if only, if only I'd had that back then or had the funding or whatever. So I, I do think that the story changes, you know, as we move forward. It's all still there. It's just a matter of what we choose to, well, well, to own. And, and, and highlight and like what you're doing now in the present right. is going to you know affect every the way you see the way we see what you've done in the past. Right. It's just like you know 
T.S. Eliot said that you know every every a new um, innovative poet is going to have to rewrite literary history, and their work itself forces us to rethink. Right. And like that's I guess one of the signs, one of the marks of you know an, an artist whose work is really uh, impactful right. is that it makes us rethink history. Right. And, yeah, I think that's true. And, and also rethinking our own history. Um, I, there was one thing, one I'm just curious, there, in one of the drawings or paintings in the, in the back room, it's, uh, most of them are just signed S. Butler, and, mm-hmm. but there's one that just says Amy Winehouse on the back <laughs> and She I, didn't make it. She didn't make that. No, that was, I, you know, that piece I was working at the Elizabeth Foundation and um, just subletting. I wasn't a, a fellow or anything. And um, it was the day that she died, that I had learned that she died. And that was the type of work I was making then, and that was my you know, my ode to Amy Winehouse because I just, I was so, it's not that I was a huge fan, but the, the, the story was just so sad and, you know, as a parent and so forth, I, it just really struck me. It was one of those, yeah, I just, I just want to say though that the painting, you know, and one of the reasons that I'm really, the, the grid resonates with me is because it's, a, it's an accumulation of, I look at it as an accumulation of small paintings, small monochrome paintings on the larger canvas. And I think it's like a, you know, painting and a life in making stuff really is sort of a metaphor for our lives because it really, and I know this is cliche to say, but it is, we, we face it one day at a time. And through the process of accumulation, you can build something or you can destroy something, right? But the painting, it's also, you know, presupposes some kind of future and some sort of that it will, it will last, it will outlast the artist it will have some some kind of afterlife it's not just about i mean there are some artists who make their work as ephemeral as possible and who don't want that who like you know who who, who take the, what you're saying the idea of, of it being in the moment as that's all that it should all be the mm-hmm. time to go mm-hmm. and trying to hold on to something is um is investing too much in the in the physical object in the, the value thing that you know people will buy and sell mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and preserve and conserve. Because it is no longer really about longevity for your work I'm, and your I'm, work I'm, outliving you. And so you really are just in the moment. And maybe there will be some solution to the destruction of the planet, or maybe not. But you decide what you're going to do. It's so true. It's and true. then you just do that. I mean, that's kind of the, it's like the, the elephant in the room. It's like what the kind of art world, art system as a whole can't really um, confront or can't really acknowledge for good reasons and they're like in denial the way a lot of us have to be in denial Mm -hmm. just to function from the next and and thinking about children and future generations um, but that like that what we value in older work of art is part of that is how how artists dealt the bad hands they were uh, dealt right right Goya I was was thinking about Goya exactly Yeah. But you know, I have this idea. It's really for a novel, but maybe a play, where museums are the caves of the future. So that what we think of as cave painting now would be what's in museums after they're covered with ash from the nuclear fallout. You could take it you could take it from there. We were 
were just talking about this, weren't we? Over in that room over there. Were we? We're talking to you about it. How do you make work in the face of knowing that it's terrible for the environment to go to our fair? It's terrible to, like, are people even going to have paintings in 50 years? Or are our children going to have paintings? Well, personally, I, you know, was really knocked over by that UN climate report. And I talked about it ad nauseum to anyone who's listening to, whoever listened to the conversations on Clubhouse. What is going to be the work of the future? And I always think of Ellsworth Kelly's um, in Austin. What is it called? Ellsworth Kelly's. Yes. I think it's just called Austin. I don't know. Anyway, he built this, he designed it before he died. And then it was built after he died. It's on the campus of University of Texas in Austin. And it's like a big old stone room. Romanesque church. It's got like bisecting, I'm, I forget my architecture language, but you know, it's like a cross shape and it's vaulted. And then the paintings are carved in stone. And so I always think that he was thinking about the future, you know, like long after the University of Texas is underwater or whatever happens to it, this chapel is going to be like Stonehenge and it's still going to be there. So I don't know. Do we all then become Don Parcaro and work in marble? I can't do it. This is the best I can do. You know, this is this is what I want to do, and I'll leave it up to my children, child, and students to figure it out from there. I think. I don't know. What about you? I think I'm still in the denial phase, and, uh, <laughs> um, but maybe it's also because I'm a writer and not a visual artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, writing, you know, I guess there are ways in which writing can survive more readily than carved in stone. Yeah, the tablets. Maybe that's the question. Watching YouTube on how to carve. Right, right. Did you see the Jenny Holzer show? She took Trump's tweets and I don't know if it was engraving or what on these sort of garbage-like little pieces of metal and they're on the wall and so it's sort of interesting because they're garbage tweets made to look like garbage but crafted in a way that's long-lasting. I'm not sure that I, how I feel about Trump's tweets being... Yeah, exactly. It's like, why bother? Questions? You know, when we first met years ago, you were going through a very long period of transition with your studio. You were moving studios every three months. And I remember you kind of crafting in your mind a whole philosophy around this kind of, what was the term? It wasn't transitionality. You had a term for it. Well, yeah. I mean, I adapted my practice to, to suit my circumstances, which were moving all the time, subletting studios. So I started working on unstretched canvas in acrylic paints because that was what I could do. I could work, it enabled me to work large, um, you know, given my circumstances. And I really started to think about transitional work or, or transition as a subject, right? And so in this work, in thinking even further about sort of making, making it kind of physical, the idea of transitions, I don't know, to me it kind of speaks to the current political climate and, you know, our situation in terms of everything seems transitional right now. It's not as though I seek to illustrate these ideas, but it always is, it seems it's always reflected in the work. No, it's like even the way you talked about this second panel here, that it actually could be moved and hung somewhere else. Which right. Is pretty interesting because I, you know, I just assumed that, actually I assumed that it was not an afterthought, but part of the process of resolving this painting, you wanted it to continue and you said, all right, well, I'll just add another piece to it. But the fact that you're, you're conceptually anyway, willing to take that piece off and move it somewhere else is really Well, now you've just given me an idea to make other panels that are different, that it could be like putting them on. I think there's almost something comic about this. Yeah. That we tend 
sometimes when talking about paintings, elements and paintings to sort of give them individuality or like you know shape that's like driving across the canvas. And here it's you know, you're you're taking also kind of uh, uh, sort of satirizing or laughing at the idea of how shapes are cut off at the edge. How, mm-hmm. Why not just extend it? I mean, when you think about it, any painting is incomplete from history or wherever, and you could complete whatever painting you want. I mean, I know you as a painter and also as the editor of Two Coats of Paint magazine and also somebody very active in Clubhouse. And I see this show as engaging an audience or a viewer slash audience in a kind of often provocative, somewhat theatrical way. For example, like this four-panel piece, certain assumptions that we have, like when two paintings are contiguous, they're supposed to be seen as one painting or four panels for that. But when you look at it, it also kind of makes you think, well, maybe they could be swapped out for different paintings. And what Raphael was just saying about what you call the leg there, here they're misaligned. But I think I saw an earlier image where they were aligned. And my favorite is probably the, the two panels in the, in the passageways, I mean the two paintings in the passageway made up with three panels each. Because it really makes me think of, um, I, I said this to you at the opening, the game of exquisite corpse, mm-hmm. where uh, nobody knows what came before, what comes after. Mm-hmm. This, the, the mismatching is what makes it hilarious or interesting. And there's a way that that's a thread through this entire show that's constantly feeding off of um, our pre-knowledge and assumptions about what makes good abstract painting. It's not a contemplative show in a way. You know, it's more of a provocative show, but within the language of abstract painting. And to me, that's very consistent with like your other activities, including Two Coats of Paint and Clubhouse. So does that make sense to you? I'm really curious. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just full of questions. You know, I'm very curious. Sometimes you just don't know how things are going to work or not work or what goes together and, and what doesn't. And, you know, the idea of putting these things together that don't, maybe don't go together, maybe they do, but it's kind of like everybody's art practice over time. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's really about time itself. <coughs> things just come one after the other. And they're next to each other. And just through proximity, they're related. Exactly. And just... To add the last thing, um, the person in the front who referred to the panel on the bottom as an afterthought, you know, but I think maybe took it back after saying it. Um, mm-hmm. I think the idea that it could be seen as an afterthought is really present in the work and very much part of the work. Yeah, I think so. I think it's definitely a show, unlike earlier shows that I've had, where it kind of shows my process of thinking, of moving through these ideas. And is it more consistent? Like, I mean, less consistent stylistically and formally than the previous shows? Well, I think it's more, to me, it's more exciting. It's more interesting. You know, I've always struggled with consistency because I like to keep moving. And my mind does work quickly, faster than my hand on the canvas. And so, to me, it's exciting to hear, you know, your feedback on that, whether it's an afterthought or whether it's about being afterthought or whether it's about proximity or, you know, all those conversations I find very interesting. Because another thing that, that kind of is implied here is that you're not um, you're not 
claiming ownership of any particular way of painting, like you're not claiming ownership of a particular formal structure or a particular way of applying the paint mm. or a particular palette that is so, and again, I guess that's also like the one consequence of, of accepting the you know, radical transitionality of, mm -hmm. of, of work. There are many, many artists who don't approach things that way and who do feel like that they're, it's important that we know immediately, oh, this is a work by so-and-so, right. and that this somehow, that there is this claim of identity and like the work is exhibiting identity and mm -hmm. confirming it. This seems to me your artistic identity is something that you try to leave open. Right. It's sort of like artists who will say, you know, you say, well, what kind of art do you make? And they'll say, and you'll expect them to say, I'm a painter, I'm a sculptor, I make videos or whatever. And they'll say, well, I use whatever medium suits my idea. I'm kind of like that with the language of painting, the different languages of painting being my palette in a way, rather than specific identifiable style. I have a quick question. Because you talk a lot about the things that are inconsistent, one of the things that I've noticed, and I, I know that time is a very consistent thing that you talk about, and you have limits on time, you do one-day paintings, and time sort of occupies a territory here that I think defines a lot of your process. Could you just talk about that a little bit? How that affects your decision making when you make a decision to do one painting a day or one drawing a day? I always think that if I find putting limits on time really helpful. You know, like if, you, if you're in a period and you're not sure where you're going or I'm not sure where I'm going, and if I say, okay, I'm going to work on this for four hours and see what happens, and maybe it's a really big tarp or something, and, and whatever you do, it kind of announces it without you're even, you know, having to think about it. So I'm, I, I often have to trick myself into working intuitively because I'm so thought heavy. I often, you know, my, my thoughts get ahead of my process. But, or, you know, when I started doing the digital drawings, I put a time, I was going to do them for 30 days, and that was going to be it, and it was going to be the basis for a book. And then I just really liked doing them, so I kept doing them for several years. I think that's a really good thing to think about time. Well, it's interesting. But the thing about time that's interesting is you can't stop it, right? right? It just keeps to. going. By saying in four hours, I'm stopping something. Yes. So I'm curious about what do you think it is you stop in four hours? Well, it's about announcing what you most want to do within that limited time, you know? Does Whether it's splash something over the whole thing or work on something very small in a corner, you know? And each one is going to have some different kind of. Uh, interesting, I don't want to say meaning because that sounds a little pretentious, but interesting ideas behind how the choices that you've made. I was going to say something more about not being able to stop time. Oh, I often think about, you know, people say, who's your audience? And my audience actually is future me. It's like I love to go back in the old boxes and dig things out. And, you know, there were things that I dug out that were possibilities for the show that I had forgotten making. You know, I had just forgotten about it and it was really wonderful to have that have those physical objects to remind me of those days and time I so guess that I'm, is like it, again you're coming back to the idea of the, hating the artwork as a journal as a, yeah as a diary this happened on this particular day I sat in the studio or in the subway and I made this thing yeah and, 
that's you know whatever else it may or may not be. That's the one thing that you can be sure of: that the connection between this object and that moment in time. Right. So, and I think that the, the idea that I'm trying to think of other like artists who really explored the painters, the, the diaristic. Well, there's Anakawara. I mean, he started the date paintings and did them for quite a while, and then at one point he introduced putting the newspapers into the box. But I, I very much like his postcards that he would send out and say, "I'm still alive." Uh, I woke up this morning. I was Yes. And like, why should that matter to anyone? It does. I mean, it's like I'm, you know, we are. Yes. Kind of like, I'm glad I know that Ankara woke up at 7:30 a.m. You know, <laughs> January 3rd, 1969. Why, why should this matter to anyone? Yeah, but then you can also cross-reference it with what you did that day. And he was in Paris or Tahiti or I don't know, wherever he was, right? And, and it's sort of... Any of that. I mean, he's like, in, in some ways, and I think that that's kind of what the difference between, say, a writer's diary, Jim Wolf's diary, and an artist working in a kind of diaristic manner is that they're, like, they're not necessarily adding or giving you any context or any biographical information. It's just, it is simply the act of having done something, made something, and that, and that's sufficient. Right. So, and with Ankara, it's because they like the kind of tautological, conceptual idea of the work somehow embodies its own functioning. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think, I hadn't really thought about your work in this way before. It's interesting. Um, the other thing uh, about d- digital drawings. I mean, that very much was a part of it when I would post them every day at like four in the morning. It really was just uh, like on Kawara's, you know, I woke up at. Well, you know, Picasso dated every work he made, and someone asked him once, well, why do you do this? And his like typical arrogance, uh, he said, so that people in the future will be able to study my work as a, like the way scientists study nature. But, but, you know, but I think he also meant like using himself as a sort of example of like here we can look at one artist and how this artist actually worked and maybe we'll learn something because on Monday he did this and then on Tuesday he did that and Wednesday he did like Ten other things. Yeah. So, dates, please. Right, right. Uh, Byron, Byron Kim's Sunday series. That's right. Yeah. All right. The Sunday paintings. I just wanted to say something about the this whole show, the, the back room with 20 years of different works of yours that are hanging back there. Because as you were saying, Rafael, you felt that there were big shifts and, and pretty different work from 20 years ago up to now. But I feel that there's a thread or sensibility in all of that work that is so revealing and so interesting to present those groups of drawings and paintings and sketches with these very new pieces that you allow the viewer to kind of enter your mind even more and really get a sense of what, what you've been thinking and how you feel for the last 20 years. And it's a very rare thing to to see that in, in just a show, right? right? Thanks, Holly. I think now that we have social media, we, we don't miss all of those different things, that, different phases that people go through. But, you know, anything from pre-2011 or so is to see it in kind of real, a mystery. You know, in a real form as opposed yeah. to just on yeah. a screen. Thank you. Like about 10 years ago, you called it provisional painting. I think Sharon then called it casualism. And it seemed to me that it referred to a kind of work, knowledge, if it didn't actually celebrate ephemerality or incompleteness of a painting, uh, both in terms of its content possibly, but also its method. And it seems to me that this is not casualism and that, and that it represents 
I can use the word transition, but some some form of some form of moving on from that kind of painting. And I'm not sure exactly how to characterize it, but I wondered if you can actually crystallize what the transition is. In other words, this painting, this work seems to me more labor intensive than what you were doing ten years ago, for example. I know an obvious hinge point in, in terms of the, the change in process would be the use of the digital drawings or the morning drawings. But I wondered if there was a, a more specific way to characterize the difference between what you were doing 10 years ago and this work here, the newer work. Well, I think that the drawings, and I want to say, you know, I really love your essays on provisional painting, and it was so uh, instrumental for the painting community to read those and respond and think about it. And you know, Rafaela is writing a book now about that. It's called The Negative. Well, not exactly writing a book, but I'm publishing a collection. Of collection, writings, right? Um, both newer and older already published writings. Um, it's called Negative Work, the uh, Turn to Provisionality in Contemporary Art. The, Which I'm really looking forward to. Yeah, it's coming out in January from uh, Bloomsbury Academic. Yeah. Well, but the, the thing that I thought was different in, that I recognized in the painting community and ultimately called casualism that was different from provisional Raphael's ideas about provisional painting was that yours were, you were looking at work that came at much more, it seemed to me, out of this Beckett idea, I can't go on, I, I'm, I always get this quote yeah. wrong, you know, but the fact that there was, no, there was nothing to be done, we're going to continue anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And whereas casualism, to me, seemed like there was this kind of joyful playfulness about, you know, ah, who cares? Let's just slap some things on. And people were sort of testing the limits of it in a fun and surprising way. To me, casualism seemed to be more addressed to a particular style and way of painting. And that some of that was overlapped with the provisionality that I was talking about. Maybe Mary Highland would be a good right. instance of that. Right. But on the other hand, like I, I was looking at artists who had a very antagonistic relationship towards painting and in, indeed towards art as a whole. Right. I think that goes in is I guess the more Beckettian like negative sense of the like inevitable failure and possibility and right. reveling that somehow. Right. But you know, for me the I I felt as though I went so far in that direction, you know, this sort of reductive direction with, uh, you know, unstretched canvases and very little paint, and I just felt I went so far uh, that I, I missed painting, you know, I missed the process of painting. And when, and as Leslie said, I went from studio to studio, and I adapted my practice to suit that. And then when I ultimately got a permanent studio space, I immediately ordered stretchers you know, and tubes of new oil paint. And I was just so excited to be in the same place for three years and to know that I have something more permanent. But the thing was, I couldn't really use them right away. You know, I had it had become so much a part of what my painting was about, was that transitional provisionality, casualist approach, that it was very hard. And it, that, in fact, threw me into a transitional period of having permanence. You know, it really unexpected. I remember I, was, I spent a residency up at Yaddo thinking, okay, what can I do with oil paint? You know, and okay, I've got these stretch canvases. What am I gonna do now? And um, so I think that this work, 
is really sort of comes out of that process of wanting to work with oil paint make and have it more complex conceptually but visually and conceptually you know trying to figure out and of course you know artists say that that's what they want but then we don't really know what that means you know physically in the process it has to come out of the process you know when I started making these it seemed like it was resonant and it answered a lot of the questions I was asking. Were the morning drawings catalytic? Oh yeah, I think so. And the process of making them was very casual. You know, just right. on the phone, there was nothing at stake. But translating them to canvas was not casual. No. Right. I mean, at first, I just translated the visual language developed on the phone drawing. And then it wasn't for a couple of years that I actually started working from specific drawing. And that was a whole different and more interesting experience because then you pick you, you have thousands of drawings which ones do you pick what's the process of deciding so it gave my head something to think about and it also gave me something to work on with my hands a good move for me do you see um, you mentioned adding on to the these paintings do you see these paintings as something that you, like periods of time that you're going to add on like you was the piece that you added to that one was the add-on painted much around the same time as you painted the larger? Yeah, yeah, it was shortly there. But, you know, I'm, I think you could go back to... Now I have this idea, you could go back to any painting and change it, and then that gives me something to think about about the history, right? Like, how important is our history, you know? Do we need to preserve our history? And, like, when you mentioned about um, different artists' evolutions over time and how certain artists evolve slowly, and works is almost autobiographical in a way, but these, you're evolving over time and you're adding on to them. Are they, as, it seems very kind of almost a personal evolution for you in the, how the works are growing. I, yeah, I would say they are. I mean, autobiographical in a really loose sense. It's not a narrative. Today I went to the grocery store and then I went, you know. But at the same time, it's, like you said before, it's what you wanted to make in a certain period. Of time. Yeah. If anyone have any more questions? Um, I think we could just look around, okay. right? Thank you, Raphael.